It's a busy place, you know. But that's what I like about it. I like, I like being busy. <laughs> My name is Anna Tavares. I'm a registered nurse in the operating room. I come into work, uh, check the board, see where I'm headed, and then I'm off. It could be, you know, vascular, neurology, um, pediatrics, like, you know, whatever it is, I just go. I'm just crazy naturally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like this is a great place to work. You know, it's a learning experience. You're able to grow here. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Like so many of Ukraine's cities, Zhitomir's civilians are paying the price for Putin's war. You almost want to be over there. You want to be over there protecting children, protecting people, uh, and the, the inability to do so. It's another, uh, another um, source of frustration for many of us. And there is Taliban checkpoints like every one click or half click in inside the city, even early in the morning. It's uh, five quarter to six in the morning here. So um, hopefully uh, I, will, I will make it inside the airport today. Uh, On the way getting there, a lot, we see a lot of Taliban, like, you know, a lot of people going back and forth. And people were coming, like, from all over the country. They had gotten the word that the United States Armed Forces are evacuating people. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. Much of the U.S. has watched in horror these past two months as Russia wages a savage war on Ukraine. And for one community in Rhode Island, the faithful at St. Michael's Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Woonsocket, the tragedy hits close to home. Tonight, we introduce you to the parish's pastor, a Ukrainian-born priest who is comforting members of his flock as they struggle to cope with the war while helping those fighting to defend his homeland. I'm Father Boris Kroner. I'm the pastor here at St. Michael's Grinning Orthodox Church. When it happened on the 24th of February, when the invasion actually took place, uh, I, as well as many of other people uh, who live in the diaspora here in Rhode Island, all across the country, we were in shock. It wasn't exactly unexpected, but it's one thing to know that something may happen and another thing to actually have it happen. We're talking about the lives of uh, not just our uh, countrymen and, and brothers and sisters in Christ, but for many of us, lives of our family members. I'm from Zhitomyr, Zhitomyr, Ukraine, which is central Ukraine. I left Ukraine in 1988 before, before the fall of the Iron Curtain and to see the cities where I grew up, the cities where I walked with my parents, where the cities where my grandmother took me to parks, to see bombs exploding there and people dying in the streets and people's homes uh, being destroyed, it's... Uh, more than heartbreaking, it, it, it was surreal. It seemed to me that, that this wasn't really happening and this must be a, some kind of a nightmare that, that I, I'm gonna wake up from at any moment. But unfortunately, it wasn't a dream, it wasn't a nightmare. 
It was uh, very much real. I can't say that I've come to grips with it yet. It's still very much outside of uh, the realm of uh, that which uh, I could live with or consider to be normal. Like so many of Ukraine's cities, Zhitomir's civilians are paying the price for Putin's war. You almost want to be over there. You want to be over there protecting children, protecting people. Uh, and the, the inability to do so, it's another, uh, another um, source of frustration for many of us. Our church is doing a lot to help people in Ukraine. For, uh, we've collected, uh, since the conflict began, over $30,000. And that just shows you the outpouring of support we have had here in the States. Um, you know, our community here in Rhode Island has, has really, really stepped out to the plate and helped. But on a personal level, I'm trying to help out my friends in the military obtain the equipment that they need to be able to protect uh, the country. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and distinct honor of presenting to you the President of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. Slava Ukraina! Slava Ukraina! I didn't expect it to be as overwhelming as, as the support has been. I know that most Americans like to support the underdog, not only, uh, not only, but not only support an underdog, but uh, Americans uh, have a very uh, good memory as it pertains to the crimes of the Soviet Union and the crimes of communism. And, and many Americans see Ukraine as fighting against the very same ideology, and they're right. Right now, the United States is doing a lot to help Ukraine. So to criticize any administration, whether it's this administration or the la even the last administration, I would not do that. They have tried to help us with weapons. They've tried to help us in, you know, pass certain resolutions, of course, sanctions. The United States have been, has been at the forefront of, of leading that charge. We weren't pushing for American boots on the ground. You know, we weren't asking the American people to fight our war for us. We were asking the American people to support us to give us uh, weapons, both light weapons and heavy weapons, which are now finally being given. That is my one criticism, that it, it, is, it took a little bit of time. Had we had them in the beginning, before this uh, latest invasion, before 2014 even, perhaps Putin would be more hesitant to send his troops in because he would know that Ukraine has uh, the ability and the, the resources to, to defend ourselves. So when If he was insane, he would be easier to dismiss. He's very much sane. He very much knows what he wants to do. Now, can you argue that his taken reality skewed, uh, that he has, for example, overestimated his own ability to accomplish his goals? Yes, you, you can make that claim. But to make a claim and say that he's insane, that also it would excuse his actions now, wouldn't it? If you can just write him off as being crazy, as being insane, then hey, I can plead insanity. I don't think it's, it's, it's right to say that he's insane. I think it's right to say that he's an evil man. But insane? No. Can a man like Vladimir Putin be forgiven? 
That's a very good and, and extremely difficult question. A man like Vladimir Putin, who has now committed war crimes and atrocities, um, can we forgive? Forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness is a journey. You don't ma wave the magic wand or snap your fingers and er every sin is forgiven. He is still bombing our cities. Uh, is forgiveness possible? Absolutely. The only sin which cannot be forgiven is sin that is not confessed. Has he confessed? Has he repented? Has he stopped bombing our people? The answer to those questions is no. War is always to be avoided, but there is such thing, unfortunately, as a necessary war. And our people, our nation, our country, our ancestral homeland is fighting a war that is necessary. Well, in the Orthodox Church, we don't have the idea or theology or the ideology of a just war. In our view, no war is just. War is always evil. War is always death. War always forces individuals that are involved in the conflict to do horrible things on both sides. However, as I said during the service, some wars are absolutely necessary. And this war that my people are fighting, they're fighting to defend their nation, their land, uh, their children. They're forced to take up arms. That's not something that we wanted to do. I, as a pastor, I, as a Ukrainian Orthodox priest, fully support them and pray for the Ukrainian army on a daily basis. We're not in Russia bombing Russian cities. Ukra Ukrainian tanks are not rolling through Moscow. It is Russian tanks and their boots that are trampling our ground, our soil. Anybody that, could, that uh, claims to know exactly what's going to happen, I, I think they're just um, uh, fooling themselves and, and, and giving you incorrect information. We don't know what's going to happen. Only God knows. Uh, only uh, one person at this point can stop the conflict, and that's Vladimir Putin. I know that Ukraine can be victorious in this, absolutely. Now we turn to a report about another conflict and a harrowing journey out of Afghanistan. Last summer, when the Taliban took control of the country, a former combat interpreter and his family were among the tens of thousands of Afghan citizens evacuated by the United States. Amin Fakiri was determined to start life over again in Rhode Island because of friendships he had in the ocean state. Fakiri sat down with senior producer Justin Kenny last January and shared his family's dramatic escape from the fallen country. My name is Amin Fakiri. Uh, I'm from Afghanistan. The first of about 250 Afghan refugees have made it to Rhode Island. Amin Fakiri and his family landed at TF Green Airport Saturday night. I had to leave because I, wor I was worried for my life and for my children's life. I was worried that the Taliban would harass us and they would harm us. I was scared for my life. I worked for the U.S. government in Afghanistan as an interpreter. I work with soldiers, I work with Afghan soldiers, I work with the United States Armed Forces. Shoot him! Shoot him! Shoot him! All right, guys. Got a front camel, okay? 
Taliban forces entered the heart of the Afghan capital, Kabul, today, the culmination of a rapid advance and retaking of control almost exactly two decades after they were ousted from power. Now, the Taliban are out in full force. They took over the presidential palace. Afghanistan's president fled the country. The country went down and uh, the government was overthrown and uh, um, over 100,000 Afghan soldiers had died and, you know, uh, everybody from their families had, had lost their loved ones. The U.S. military gave a lot of sacrifices. They, they built this country in the last 20 years. It, they, they spent tr trillions of dollars. I blame the politicians. I blame the people in power. I, I blame people in power all over the world. It took a long time for me to get to uh, Rhode Island. So it was a long journey, it wasn't easy. I had to go through a lot of chaotic situations and a lot of upsetting moments, time. They walked for nine hours, uh, just my kids with a suitcase. My six-year-old, four-year-old, eight-year-old, and ten-year-old, and my spouse. We are about to reach Kabul. My kids are happy here. Uh, they will have a safe life in Kabul for a few days. And uh, the Taliban were dominating. They were letting people know that we are here, and uh, we are the government now. They were shooting all over the place. They were firing, there were fires, you know, machine gun fires, artillery fires all over the city. My brother, he was at the airport. He called me and he said, early in the morning, leave your house, you know, find a cab from the evening time and then have the cab come pick you up. This is uh, Amin. We have left for the airport. All my kids are here with me. Um, so we are making our way to the airport. Uh, let's let's give it a try. See if we can get in. There are some guys, the OGA guys, the Afghan counterpart uh, with the Marines. Uh, some of my friends are there. I'm in contact with them. So hopefully those guys will get me in. Uh, and there is Taliban checkpoints, like every one click or half click, in inside the city, even early in the morning. It's uh, five quarter to six in the morning here. So um, hopefully uh, I will I will make it inside the airport today. On the way getting there, a lot, we see a lot of Taliban, like, you know, a lot of people going back and forth, and people were coming, like, from all over the country. They had gotten the word that the United States Arab forces are evacuating people. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport, desperate to get on planes and leave the country at any cost. We saw everything went down, you know, and my kids witnessed like shots fired. My kids witnessed like people being being shot outside when we were getting inside. It was not easy. I mean, people were just literally shooting like like every every second. I'm out here inside the airport. There is like people are on the runway, uh, going all around the place. Um, these big airplanes are here. Um, the Marines are inside the wire. They have put a sea wire around. So I'm going in to. Uh, nearby a marine to uh, talk to him. Let's see if he talks to me.
We got out of C-130 and it was crowded. And the soldiers, the Marines, they were doing a great job. They were respecting people. They were giving water and food to people on the plane. The mood was sad. People were not talking to each other. And uh, they were just there. I mean, they were just breathing. Who would want to leave their country in, in such a chaotic way? We were feeling fantastic. I mean, we were warmly welcome. Um, everybody came to the airport uh, from, you know, the news and uh, my friends. So it felt great. It felt like we have arrived to our, uh, you know, last destination. So far, Rhode Island has been amazing. People have treated me with, with respect and uh, people have been so generous. I'm being hosted by a very generous and a very kind family. They have given me everything uh, my kids need and everything I need. So it's been very positive. My kids, uh, they were nervous and, uh, you know, they said what's going to happen and what's going to be there. So they were, they were always, you know, expecting good things. So I said, this is the United States. This is the land of the free. So. People are going to love you guys and they're very happy now. I mean, they're growing up and I see them grow up and uh, I see them cooperate with people on daily basis. They're, you know, they, they're getting to learn English and uh, it's just, it's been amazing for them. Here in Rhode Island, I work for the Bremer Law and Associates. The office is helping Afghans with humanitarian parole visa status. And I'm very happy I got that job because I'm still getting to work with my people who have applied, I'm trying to talk to them through emails and WhatsApp, uh, get their documents, process their documents for humanitarian parole so they could come to uh, safety in the United States. I'm all about helping the community now. I'm all about being a role model to other people. I'm trying to advocate for the refugee life in Rhode Island, not just for Afghan refugees, but for refugees from all over the world. I would like to extend my gratitude to all the resettlement agencies operating in the United States for helping me and my people, the Afghan refugees, who left the country in a very dramatic way. And uh, I want to thank the U.S. military for taking care of my people. I'm very grateful and I'm very appreciative of everything. Fakiri's wife did not appear in our story. Apparently, she was concerned about the safety of her family back in Afghanistan. This week, uh, the former translator told us that his oldest three children are happily in school now here in Providence. And finally, tonight, a spring story. In the coming weeks, many of our area's flowers will be in peak bloom, producing breathtaking beauty in yards across the state. 
Not all gardens, however, are created equal. As Michelle San Miguel first reported last April, one Exeter couple has been upping their floral ante and dazzling visitors with their wicked tulips. We really want it to be about being in nature and just slowing down, taking a breath, and smelling the tulips. Hundreds of thousands of tulips poke through the fields of southern Rhode Island. Hues of pink, red, yellow, purple. Tulips are just a uh, magical flower, I think, but might be the only flower what brings this much happiness because it's in early spring and it's so colorful. But that one's going to be cool, but like triple. Carrie Ann and Jeroen Kuman have been hard at work for months, turning this farm in Exeter into a tulip mecca. They started planting their Dutch imported tulip bulbs in October. It took about two months to get 800,000 bulbs in the ground between their Rhode Island and Preston, Connecticut locations. The process is meticulous. When we plant them in our rows, we want them to be very pretty. We want them to have consecutive blooming so that it looks gorgeous all the time. And so, yeah, we're like, all right, let's do this like deep pink and this white and this dark purple that'll pop. Carrie Ann admits she didn't know much about these colorful flowers until she met Jeroen in 2008. She was living in Virginia working as a mortgage broker when Jeroen responded to her ad for a roommate. It wasn't long before more than tulips were in bloom. What was that conversation like when he told you, I'm a tulip farmer? I was like, so what do you do? And he, in his Dutch accent, he's like, don't laugh. <laughs> I'm a tulip farmer. And of course, I laughed. Because <laughs> at the time, you didn't know any tulip farmers. No, no, I barely did any gardening. Jeroen comes from a large Dutch family of tulip farmers. This home video from 1979 shows Jeroen's father working at their family farm in Holland. Two of his brothers now run the family's 150-acre operation. His other brother runs a Yupik farm in Milan, Italy. But Jeroen didn't always have his eyes set on staying in the family business. We all worked a lot on the farm and, and definitely in my teenage years it was like no way I will never do this type of stuff because as a, as a teenager that just seemed like a lot of work uh, for not that much return. Eventually, Jeroen found his way back to these spring blooms. When he brought Carrie Ann to Holland to meet his family, Carrie Ann was awestruck when she saw his family's tulip farm. As far as the eye could see, there were flowers. She asked Jeroen if she could pick one. I said, like, you can pick as many you want. And then I just looked at him, my heart, I literally swooned. And I was like, really? As many as I want? And I just started picking. I had them like in my back pocket and I'm just picking them. And it brought me such joy. And that was one of the things that when we started talking about doing the you pick that we wanted to bring back. And that's one of the things we heard from people. They come like, oh, I can't believe we can pick these. Shortly after, the Kumans opened their first you pick tulip farm in Virginia. In late 2015, they moved to Rhode Island and opened Wicked Tulips Flower Farm a place for guests to stroll through rows of tulips and pluck the ones they want. It was a business model that Jeroen had not seen play out in Holland. Yupik is not a viable option in Holland because there are so many 
tulips that it is not that interesting to walk in the field and pick flowers. When we started, pretty much, yeah, everybody said like, there's no way you're gonna be able to make a living from this. How are you gonna survive? No one's gonna come, they're not gonna pay. This is not gonna work. And um, we just kept proving them wrong. This is their sixth season in the state. They've amassed a large following in that time. Families that come back year after year. It's really special. And I love seeing the pictures of the kids from like year to year that they've been coming since we opened. As you're going around the state, do people say, you're the tulip farmers? Yeah, sometimes. It's pretty funny. They're like, oh, we don't want to bother them. And I'm like, it's okay. Why do you think this business model has become so successful? It brings happiness. They get to pick. Like when you get to go to any garden, you're not allowed to pick. And then you used to call them happy hormones. They just start flowing. <laughs> and also it's, it's just so calm out here and getting back to nature in such a beautiful way. You'll find about a hundred varieties of tulips here. Flowers with names like Red Emperor and White Prince. The Kumans are leasing 20 acres here in Exeter, but right now they're only growing tulips on five of them. Every year they need to rotate where the flowers grow. That's because once tulip season is over, they have to dig the bulbs out of the ground and let the soil rest for at least three years to prevent the attack of a fast spreading fungus. You can have a complete crop uh, failure if you get this disease in there. They, they call it in Holland uh, fire, tulip fire. And so it's because it spreads like fire. You'll see like dots on the petals and on the leaves and they die sooner. Rhode Island's cool climate makes it ideal for growing tulips. What the Kumans weren't expecting were all of the rocks they dug up when they went to plant their bulbs. We have those planting machines from Holland and they are not used to rocks. So if you hit like these types of rocks, then your planting machine uh, bends like butter. The rocks were nothing compared to their biggest obstacle yet, the coronavirus. Their UPIC business relies on visitors coming to the tulip farm. When the pandemic hit last year, they didn't know if they'd be able to open the following month. So we started just brainstorming, like, how can we salvage this? How can we save this? And then cross your fingers, hoping that the guidelines will change by the time that you're ready to open. Because we're one of the first, nothing else is blooming then. Curbside pickup gave new meaning to, if you plant it, they will come. There were some people that bought, that came back five times. Um, to get numerous bouquets. Um, and, you know, they didn't need to do that. They did it to be supportive. Yeah, that was really awesome to feel the love back. They donated tulips to nursing homes during the start of the pandemic. Now they're looking at ways, as Jeroen puts it, to spread the tulip love year round. He's considering setting up greenhouses where he can teach people how to grow tulips. It is for me very hard to, um, to, to have three weeks of the year the happiness place of Rhode Island and the other 50 weeks being closed and just prepare, prepare, prepare. And I want to I give more tulip love to people, I think. The Kumans also sell a variety of bulbs and want to inspire others to grow their own tulips. Do you guys have moments where you look at each other and just say, gosh, I can't believe we get to do this together? Yes, and sometimes yeah. we're like, gosh, I wish we weren't doing this together. 
it can't be easy being a no, husband and wife working together all the no, time. No, it's definitely been tough. And I mean, because when you're making decisions, it just gets real personal real quickly. One of their favorite parts of the business is sharing their love of tulips with their three-year-old son, Case. He's quickly getting the hang of the family business. All the way back. Yeah, you did it. What does your son think about all of this? He wants to be a tulip farmer. <laughs> Regardless of whether their son grows up to be a tulip farmer, Carrie Ann and Yaroon want their son and everyone who comes to their farm to take away one simple thing. Really, I just hope that when they come, they can let out that breath and put in a smile and just really just feel the happiness and feel happy within themselves and just forget about everything for a while. The Wicked Tulips Flower Farm in Exeter will be open from April 29th through May 20th. That's our broadcast this evening. I'm David Wright. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you for joining us, and good night.